The Eighth Dimension, Holy Truth. The awareness that the cosmos objectively exists now, that this existence is its own definition and continues whether an individual understands it or not, and that the individual experiences the truth of reality most completely when he views each moment fresh without preconceptions about what should be happening. That's a quote from Echazo. The holy idea for the eighth dimension is holy truth. It refers to the unity of existence and includes and goes beyond what we might call essence or even the absolute. To understand what the holy truth is, we need to first investigate what truth is. Truth. The first type or level of truth that we encounter is what we might call relative truth. Relative truth is the fact of what is happening, and we call this relative because it is specific to a person, to a situation, and to a time in which the experience is taking place. This means that it is constantly changing. For example, the relative truth right now is that you are walking or sitting whilst listening to me, and a while ago the truth was that you were doing something else. The relative truth depends on the situation and tells us the fact of what is happening now. These truths are the most obvious ones and are the points of departure for contacting a deeper level of truth. If we inquire more deeply into the relative truth of a situation, we will find that the psychodynamic and existential bases of it begin to reveal themselves. Then, at some point, we might start to experience what we call essential truth, which could be described as the presence of essence itself. For example, let's say that we find ourselves one day fantasizing about eating some ice cream. The relative truth is that this is what is going on in our mind. If we inquire into the desire for the ice cream, we might realize that we are feeling alone. And this then brings up a sense of missing a particular kind of contact. Then, as we stay with this, we see that we're wanting maybe a certain kind of love that reminds us of our mother. We realize that our mother's love tastes a little like ice cream. And this might lead us into experiencing a quality of love that is sweet and soft and that makes us feel cared for and loved. As we contact this quality of love, we are, you might say, in touch with the actual essential aspect that we long ago identified with our mother. This level of the truth of the situation is the essential truth. The non-essential truth, the other truth if you like, is this quality of love that is present in us but is only felt on a relative level as the desire for ice cream. But
But on this essential level, the facts of our situation take on a sense of meaning, of richness and of depth because they usher us into the realm of what truly exists beyond the surface of things. An essential truth is not a thought or an idea or a reaction or an action. Its most important characteristic is that it is an ontological presence. Essential truth is an ontological presence. It has a substantive existence. Although the relative truth of a situation can take us to the essential truth of it, the essential level is not dependent upon the situation. It is self-existing. It is its own realm existing independently of who we are and what we are doing. The essential truth helps us understand what is really happening and what exists beneath the appearance of things. A fantasy of eating ice cream is simply an image in our minds, and even real ice cream disappears or changes form after it is eaten. The love that it may evoke or reflect, however, has an intrinsic and unchanging existence, although our awareness of it may come and go. It exists, we could say, as a presence that is substantive and real. It has energy, affect, and potency. Energy, affect, potency. If we continue pursuing the truth of the situation, the essential truth will continue to expand and reveal ever deeper dimensions of being until, at some point, we may come into contact with the formless dimensions of being, capital B. When we first encounter essence, capital E, we experience it in the dimension of form contained within us. In other words, there is love in my heart, there is will in my belly, there is clarity in my head. We might refer to these ontological understandings as essence. There is love in my heart, will in my belly, clarity in my head, and so on. At a deeper level, the presence of essence expands and loses its boundaries, and we realize that it is actually boundless. This is the beginning of experiencing the formless or boundless dimensions. The first formless dimension that we usually encounter is that of living daylight, a love that is not just within us, but is everywhere, pervading everything, penetrating all boundaries. So, you could say that we have moved from the fact of what is happening to what truly exists within us, and from there to what truly exists beyond our bodies, what exists in the whole cosmos. In the boundless dimensions, essence still has the quality of being a presence, a fullness, and a richness. As our experience deepens, the boundless dimensions keep revealing themselves in continuing depth, one after the other, as we penetrate deeper and deeper concepts within our minds. And these dimensions will lead us eventually to the deepest, innermost truth, absolute truth. This dimension of the absolute is beyond all concepts, including that of existence or non-existence.
It is not that there is a formless or boundless dimension that pervades everything or is the essence of everything, since seeing it this way creates a dichotomy that does not exist. It is not as though there is a me and there is my essential nature. The formless dimensions bring in another kind of perception, which is of being as a formless, boundless, real existence, a substantial presence that is not contained by any boundary. When we experience pure, translucent, self-existing, boundless presence, we see that it is not only the fundamental nature of essence itself, but also of everything that exists. It exists in everything and everything exists in it. We see here that the universe is ultimately some form of pure being and that this pure being not only supports us, infuses us and is our nature, but more fundamentally that it constitutes us. It is completely inseparable from what we are. So it not only pervades and fills the universe, but it is the universe. This understanding that there is no universe separate from this pure, boundless, self-existing beingness is, we might say, a more complete level of the truth. The perception that being constitutes the totality of everything is what is generally called a mystical experience. Before this, we may have spiritual experiences, but when we experience the oneness and the unity of existence, we are on the level of the mystical. In the dimension of living daylight, we experience that everything is made out of love. When we look around, everything might appear, for example, to be made out of this sort of pink and sweet diamond-like taffy substance and be pervaded with wonder, beauty and sweetness. Footnote, although who's to say what our individual mystical experience will present itself as, perhaps this is how it appeared for Hamid, um, a kind of fairground, slightly kitsch vision, but don't worry, other mystical experiences are also available to be had. So the experience of boundlessness that arises as we move into the formless dimensions becomes the deepest level of truth that we perceive. On the level of the supreme the dimension of pure presence or pure being, for example, we realize that everything is a translucent beingness. We see that it is not as though translucent beingness is in everything or that everything exists in it, but that everything is the translucence. It is inside things, outside things, and in between them. There is no place that is not translucent beingness. On this level of the Supreme, there is no separation between what we call appearance and reality, the form and the meaning. They are all one thing. There is a unity. The perception of this unity arises through merely seeking to understand the truth of the situation. It is not a matter of generating a particular experience. You just open your eyes to what is here. When we experience this level of truth, we do not only perceive this inherent unity, but we also see that as we stay with this one 
boundless dimension, it reveals another, deeper one. Dimensions of formless being reveal themselves until we come to the origin and source of all dimensions, the Absolute. Initially, we might experience the Absolute as the source of everything. But as our experience matures, we realize that everything is the Absolute. There is no separation. The full experience of the Absolute is that there is nothing but the Absolute. Just as we have seen that love constitutes everything in this dimension of living daylight and being constitutes everything on the level of the Supreme, here we see that the Absolute constitutes everything, the everything of everything, you might say. So, as our understanding of the nature of reality deepens, it becomes more and more mysterious and non-conceptual until it arrives at this dimension of the Absolute in which the nature of reality reveals itself as a profound mystery. comprehensive unity. However, none of the levels of truth that we have been describing is what the holy idea of holy truth refers to. Holy truth is the perception that all these levels are actually one thing, that all the dimensions constitute a complete state of unity. In other words, all the dimensions of reality are completely inseparable from one another and all are the same thing. This is the perception that there is absolutely no duality, either horizontally between objects or vertically between dimensions. So, although we experience ourselves moving progressively into deeper and deeper dimensions of reality as our inquiry becomes increasingly subtle, holy truth is the perception that all these dimensions exist simultaneously. They are all facets of the same reality. So the sense of a hierarchy is ultimately illusory. To understand how all the dimensions exist as a unity, let's take the example of the physical body. At the level of relative truth, we first see the appearance of the body. We see its shape, we notice the limbs, the face, the expression. Penetrating beneath the surface, we realize that there are muscles, there are bones, there are organs, blood vessels, and so on. This level, we might say, would correspond to essential truth. If we investigate now into the nature of these inner components, we will see that they are all made out of molecules. These molecules reveal themselves to be made out of atoms, which in turn are made of subatomic particles. These levels would correspond to the progressive truths of the formless dimensions. Investigating even more deeply, we discover that these are ultimately space, corresponding to the absolute level. Are the sub atomic particles or the organs separate from the outer form of the body? No. All these dimensions are present and interpenetrate each other. We can't take one level away and leave the others remaining. 
Although the absolute is the ultimate reality that remains unchanged if we take everything else away, still all levels of reality exist as a totality all the time. They form a unity. Holy truth, therefore, negates duality. It tells us that there is no such thing as a discrete, separate existence. However, we know that for the consciousness of the ego self, of the ego cage, the sense of separateness is fundamental. So, holy truth, we might say, challenges and ultimately, if we're lucky, dissolves the ego's sense of separateness. There is no difference between me and you, you and me, at this level. While one does experience the sense of unity when experiencing any of the formless dimensions, the perception here is of the unity of the dimensions themselves. The unity of the dimensions themselves. And the Buddhists would call this total completeness. Uh, the Sufis call it the all-inclusive state or the divine being whose all-inclusive name is Allah. Allah then does not refer to any particular dimension or state, at least not at this mystical level, but refers to all that exists at any time on all its levels, in all its dimensions, as a unity. So we could call this perception of holy truth, objective truth, reality, the universe in its totality, divine being, unity of existence or total completeness, Shazam. Oscar Ichazo's definition of holy truth is this, quote, the awareness that the cosmos objectively exists now, italics, now, that this existence is its own definition and continues whether an individual understands it or not, and that the individual experiences the truth of reality most completely when they view each moment fresh, without preconceptions, about what should be happening. So let's break this down and see what can be understood. The awareness that the cosmos objectively exists now. Perhaps he's saying here that the totality of all that exists on all its levels, which is what presumably he means when he uses the word cosmos, is the nowness of experience and that this totality objectively exists. It is its own definition, meaning that it does not depend on our opinions about it and, quote, continues whether an individual understands it or not, meaning that it actually exists <laughs> whether or not we understand it or even care about it in terms of, of this level of existence. To experience reality fully, one, it might be then suggested, must view each moment fresh without preconceptions about what should be happening. Meaning that if we're completely open, not filtering our experience of the moment through our subjectivity, through the bars of the cage, we will see this unity existing right now. And this now does not actually refer to time, but to the immediately apprehended existence of the universe itself. So everything that is conceivable and experienceable exists right now as one. 
The formless dimensions, the essential states and physical reality, are not separate from each other, nor are they physical objects separate from each other. There is no division anywhere here, only complete unity. The alchemical concept for this is the idea of the macrocosm, the totality of the universe. If we turn to the Sufis, their sense of the holy idea is expressed in the following poem by Shabistari from The Secret Garden. For the human animal, whose soul is never vexed by doubt, they know of a surety that there is but one existence absolute. To say, I am the Lord, belongs to God alone. Their personality is not with us. Fancy and thought lie hid. God's glory may by none be shared. Therein I, you, and we are not, for all are one. The animal, who is also human, and their existence, our existence, existence, join in one, for unity admits no variance. When we are free from self, when we obtain that freedom, through our echoing souls resounds, verily, we are God, and in eternity is opposition overwhelmed, and then the pilgrim and their progress are but one. Concord and incarnation spring from variance, but unity is born of pilgrimage. With neither a god enslaved nor a man becoming a god, concord and union here may never be, for to see two in one is error's core. Creator and created beings are alike a dream, nor is what seems to be. What is that atom greater than the whole? There is one atom greater than the whole, existence. For behold, the universe is, yet that universe itself is being. Being is various in outward form, but in its being there is inward unity. Shabistari is saying that to understand and experience this unity, we have to experience beingness. It is only in beingness that we can perceive the unity. If we look at reality from the egoic perspective, we don't see unity. We see discord, we see opposition, and we see duality. But if we experience beingness and allow it to guide us, it will lead us to the formless dimensions and the experience that things do not exist separately from each other. On this level, we can see that separateness is not ultimately real, and that although objects may appear discrete, in reality, all objects actually make up one thing. This understanding is expressed from a Buddhist perspective in the following passage by the Tibetan Lama Longchenpa. It is taken from their text on the Mantrayana Tantra, which is written from the state of unity itself, as though unity were expressing itself. We will notice, as we read, that the language is very similar to that of some of the theistic approaches. 
here's a piece. All experiences and life forms cannot be proven to exist independently of their being a presence before our minds, just like a lucid dream. All that is has me, universal creativity, pure and total presence, as its root. How things appear is my being. How things arise is my manifestation. Sounds and words heard are my messages expressed in sounds and words. All capacities, all forms and pristine awarenesses of the Buddhas, the bodies of sentient beings, their habituations and so forth, all environments and their inhabitants, life forms and experiences, are the primordial state of pure and total presence. Not realizing that everything we can perceive is nothing other than the manifestation of one's mind is called samsara in Buddhism. Samsara is understood to be the delusional state, and it is seen here from Longchenpa's point of view as not really recognizing the unity of what is. Here's another section from You Are the Eyes of the World, in which the non-dual doctrine of Zogchen, or total completeness, is described. Quote, because my creativity is beyond all affirmation and negation. I determine all events and meanings. Because no objects exist which are not me, you are beyond perspective or meditation. Because there does not exist any protection other than me, you are beyond charismatic activity to be sought. Because there is no state other than me, you are beyond stages to cultivate. Because in me there are, from the beginning, no obstacles, you are beyond all obstacles, self-arising, pristine awareness just is. Because I am unborn reality itself, you are beyond concepts of reality. Subtle reality just is. Because there is nowhere to go apart from me, one is beyond paths to traverse. Because all wise ones, sentient beings, appearances, existences, environments, inhabitants arise from the quintessential state of pure total presence. One is beyond duality. Because self-arising pristine awareness is already established, one is beyond justifying it. The transmission of this great teaching provides direct entry into understanding. Because all phenomena do not exist apart from me, one is beyond duality. I fashion everything. So according to the idea of holy truth, reality, when seen objectively, has no divisions in it. It exists, it is now, and it is non-dual. 
There is no me, there is no you, there is no other, there is no universe separate from this, from God, if you want to use that term. No universe separate from the void, no you and essence, no personality and essence, no physical body and soul. All these distinctions are illusions and are not ultimately real. There is only one thing and it cannot even be called one, because if we call it one, we are comparing it to two, and it is not one in contrast to two. It is non-dual in this perception, an indivisible existence, no matter how we look at it or think about it. While the different teachings may emphasize different qualities of this unity, seeing it from the perspective of love or awareness, for example, the assertion here really is that fundamental to reality is the fact of unity. All the religions assert this sense of the all-inclusiveness of reality. Another way of saying it is that life, God, is everywhere, omnipresent. And holy truth is the way that the teaching of this, these facets of unity, these Enneagrams of holy ideas express this understanding. This is holy truth. We must remember that the nature of the whole of reality is not expressed by holy truth alone. It is described by all three of those holy ideas at the top of the Enneagram. If we really experience the unity of all things, we also recognize inherently that loving quality of this unity. The existence of holy love in the ninth dimension is the existence of a loving, gentle, positive quality. Plato referred to the ultimate reality as the good, indicating that he perceived the intrinsic positivity of it. And we will explore this in more detail when we come to the ninth dimension. If we experience the unity described by holy truth, we will also experience its fundamental rightness, its holy perfection. And we will see that everything that happens is perfect because all is happening exactly as it should be. Because how, how, else, how, how else could it be happening other than in this way? And, and the idea there is that we will see then the beauty and the harmony of whatever happens because that is what it is. It is the truth of the moment seen without the interference of the perspective of the ego cage. And this will be further examined when we look at the first dimension. These three holy ideas are interconnected and together we could say that they describe the nature of reality at a metaphysical level. In some traditions there is a debate about what the ultimate reality is. Is it the absolute or is it the state of total completeness? The Sufi and Kabbalistic traditions take the view that the absolute is the ultimate reality. The Indian traditions are divided, with the Vedantists taking the absolute to be the ultimate, while some of the yogic paths take the state of total completeness to be the ultimate. The Buddhists disagree. The Theravadan tradition believes the absolute is ultimate, while the Tibetan Buddhists are divided. The Nying Mapa sect believes that the state of total completeness is ultimate, while the Gelugpa believe the absolute is ultimate. And here a footnote from Hamid. When I mention other religious or spiritual traditions and their points of view, I am not saying that my understanding of them is authoritative. 
I am referring to their descriptions of various states and understandings in the light of my own experience, explicating their knowledge through my own understanding. Someone of a particular tradition might say that they mean something slightly different and that I am misinterpreting what they mean. In referring to a particular tradition, I'm not necessarily sanctioning it or even agreeing with its tenets. These, there are distinct differences between my diamond approach and other traditions. Of course, there are, Hamid, although there are also many similarities in perspective. I am simply using examples from other traditions in order to facilitate the understanding of things that are difficult to explain in words. Back to the text in which Hamid declares, in my view, there is no need to decide since freedom has nothing to do with what state you experience or take to be ultimate. So the question is largely a matter of how we define ultimate truth. If we define the ultimate truth as that which is left when everything that can be removed is removed, we are then perhaps describing the absolute. It is the state most devoid of any creation or concept, reality reduced to its simplest minimum. If we define ultimate truth as the actual state that is experienced when there is no manipulation or conceptualization of our experience, we, we recognize it then as a state of total completeness because there is no duality present in it. The state of total completeness is all-inclusive with the manifest and the unmanifest existing in non-duality. Everything is present, including the absolute, which is seen as its inner nature. In either case, the perception of the unity of all existence, holy truth, remains the same. It is the perception that there are no divisions and no duality between things that everything is one beingness, one existence. This is the reality beyond egoic reality, true existence independent of the personal mind. It includes everything without any separations and it does not matter what we call it. We could call it God, we could call it one mind, we could call it the state of Buddha, we could call it the Tao, we could call it divine being, we could call it... Justin Timberlake or Lizzo, it really doesn't matter what we call it. The most important understanding of holy truth is that physical reality and true existence are not separate. Physical reality and true existence are not separate. Physical reality is made up of objects, including love objects, which can be discriminated. And if we perceive the world exclusively through the physical senses, we perceive only discrete objects, such as people, trees, animals, rocks, clouds, oceans, earth, etc. If we experience this level only, which is the basis of the egoic perspective, you, me, them, the universe that we see is dualistic. But if our perception is unobscured by our beliefs, our inner perception becomes unblocked, we might say, and the universe at this point looks quite different. A lot of people have this experience on drugs or through other mind-altering substances or practices. If our perceptual capacities are clear, we recognize that other dimensions exist in addition to physical reality. Other dimensions that we may even describe as love with a capital L, which is different from the L word. Another term for this might be beingness, 
awareness. At this level of perception, we see that there is only one existence, one homogeneous medium. This medium encompasses physical reality, which is one particularization of it. Objects are seen as objects, but they are not discrete. They are more like waves on the surface of an ocean. These waves lacking existence without the whole of the ocean itself. So differentiation does exist, but not ultimate divisions. Physical reality and non-duality. Surprisingly, this perception of unity makes physical reality itself appear more concrete, not less. It appears more three-dimensional with more of a sense of depth. Ordinarily, when experiencing the state of oneness, physical reality is seen as the surface with the boundless dimensions as the underlying depths. But when the boundless dimensions are perceived as interpenetrating the physical, the three-dimensionality of all of this is enhanced. Everything stands out, feels more real, more present, and more itself, in a sense. And again, we may have experienced this when coming out of deep, meditative, trance-like states, or when being altered in some way by a substance. I know I have. In the experience of non-duality, it is not as though physical reality were a dream emanating from it. That perception would still be dualistic. When duality is seen through, physical reality is imbued with the essential dimension, and at that moment the two become one. This gives the physical more reality, more substance, more existence, more meaning, more depth, and more dimensionality. Damn, doesn't that sound good? When you look at people, they seem more substantial, and even their bodies appear more physical, in a sense. Every object and every person has a concreteness and a definiteness that makes each of them appear more defined, more present, and more complete, because our experience of them includes the depths of true existence. When everything is perceived as the absolute, as the absolute truth, each atom, each form has this depth. The absolute not only underlies everything, but it penetrates all of manifestation. Depending upon which dimension we are experiencing, everything we, ex we perceive acquires this depth and beauty, the depth and beauty of this dimension of holy truth, absolute truth. Reality itself is seen as the beauty and the grace of this dimension. So the totality of the universe is, at this point, the absolute or the supreme, for instance, manifesting as beauty. Our bodies, our thoughts, our feelings are not separate from the truth, but are part and parcel of it. They are the truth itself. We are the truth itself. And the truth is there in every atom, every thought, every feeling, everywhere. So it is not our inner nature. There is nothing else but the truth. There is no inner. There is no outer. There is this. 
This is very different from one's initial experience of essential reality, in which there is a me, and there is my body, and sort of essence is felt to be inside me, as I feel it now, sitting here, reading. To understand the difference, let's suppose that this state of essence that I'm experiencing is the pearl. Uh, we could even call it personal essence. In this case, I feel as though a sort of pearl is filling my belly or the whole of my body. That kind of essence, that consciousness, that embodied felt consciousness. Now, imagine that instead of this pearl filling my belly or my body, your belly, your body, each one of our atoms is made out of that pearl. And the sense of each atom as a pearl is still physical, but it feels rather like the fullness of pearly existence. <laughs> the fullness of pearly existence. This is what could be said to be unity. The physical and the essential become one. It is not that the physical is filled by the essential, but rather that the physical is the essential. In the same way that our muscles are composed of atoms, so the whole of our body is made out of beingness, is made out of this pearly stuff, which is not stuff, is made out of pearliness, maybe. When this sense of unification is complete and there is no duality in our experience, physical reality itself is experienced as the ultimate reality. Then all of physical reality, including all its objects, all its manifestations, is seen as this beautiful, substantial and fundamental reality. It is not separate from it, it doesn't come out of it, nor is it filled by it. It is it. Grace doesn't happen to physical reality. Physical reality itself is the grace. It is the beauty. It is life. It is God if that's how you would like to refer to this. This is what the Buddhists refer to as the Great Seal, the Mahamudra, in which all that we feel and see are unified within true nature. It is the unity of appearance and of emptiness. This is one way of understanding what is meant by unity without duality. There is no separation here, no division, no distance between the surface and the depth, between me and you between me and my ghosts, those others who are felt to be existing in other dimensions, other planes, cut off from where I, the I of consciousness, is currently perceiving itself. When we're talking about holy truth, there is no separation, no division, no distance between surface and depth. There is no surface and depth. There is no inside. There is no outside. The unity is the complete interpenetration, the complete intermixing of inner and outer. It becomes all of one quality, all of the same thing. Experiencing this unity reveals to us that life is beautiful. Prior to this, when we experience ourselves moving from the state of the physical or of personality to the state of the essential or of these boundless dimensions, there is understandably a feeling that life is a problem or that there are problematic aspects to our lives. The best option seems to be to get away from life, 
or to do it differently, and one may long to disappear or to die, to die from a certain kind of experience, a certain kind of suffering. But from the perspective of unity, there is no such thing as dying, nor of being reborn. There is no such thing as ego death, and no such thing as enlightenment either, since we are already the unity. This is the state of affairs all the time and always before we develop an ego, when the ego is dissolving, and after we are dissolved, after it's all kaput, this individual consciousness. All these parts are the unity itself. And so, in a very core way, we are not going anywhere. This is why Long Chenpa indicates in the poem that was quoted earlier, that there is no path to take, there is no state to attain, and there is no technique to use. All we need to do is recognize that the state of total completeness is the state of everything, right at this moment. Right now. Right now. Mm, yeah, maybe. If we don't interfere or manipulate things and just let them be the way they are, we will experience the state of unity, which Hamid sometimes refers to as the natural state, since it's allowing things to be as they naturally are. This is reality. This is enlightenment. This is God. You don't need to change anything or be anywhere other than where you are. Even if we are experiencing suffering, that suffering itself is the reality and absolutely nothing needs to be done about it. Even if we are experiencing suffering, that suffering itself is the reality and absolutely nothing needs to be done about it. This understanding explains why reality is also called holy perfection, which is the holy idea of the first dimension dimension one. Holy perfection means that everything is perfect at all times because there is never anything or any experience that is not the reality of the holy truth, the holy truth of the eighth dimension. Even when we experience ourselves as separate from uh, reality, from a person, that again is the reality. <laughs> that is the reality. So from this perspective, there is no need for a human animal to do anything. None of the other, other animals are doing anything about reality, and neither do we. We don't need to practice, we don't need to understand ourselves, we don't need to do any work on ourselves, since everything, including ourselves, is already in the state of unity, says a man who runs, <laughs> who runs a whole religious community, semi-religious community um, called the Diamond Approach. No need for practice. <laughs> okay. Moment to moment, yes, moment to moment, no need for practice. It is from this perspective that some teachings, including the Buddhist Mahaati teaching, say that there is no need to practice. You don't need to meditate. You don't need to sit into a in a posture. You don't need to visualize any deities. The only practice is to relax because we're already there. You're already there. And nothing needs to be done. So in this tradition, whenever we see an egoic manifestation, we just relax. Ah, separateness. Relax. Ah, abandonment. Relax. 
<sighs> Conflict. Relax. If we are more advanced, we don't even need to relax since we're already in the state of unity. So being relaxed or unrelaxed is irrelevant. <laughs> this is the foundation for the practice of Dzogchen, which is taught by the Nyingmapa sect of Tibetan Buddhism. It is a tradition that works in the non-dual only and is said to be for people possessing superior capacity. So not for the likes of you and me then. The idea is that the state of unity, the natural state, is not something to be attained. It is the state of affairs all the time. If we think that there is something to be attained, we are creating a duality, since we are implicitly saying that there is a natural state and there is an unnatural state. So the unnatural state might be me here all alone, and the natural state might be me with another doing certain things. But who's to say in the non-dual position? There is no difference. From the Dzogchen perspective, this natural state is always the state that is occurring. We are just not always recognizing it as such. Even when we are not aware of it, we are in it. The only difference is that when there is recognition, we suddenly and gloriously see the depth the concreteness, the reality, the beauty, the harmony, and the grace of how things actually are. We see how things are already perfect, and this is why another name for total completeness in this way is sometimes referred to as the great perfection. The perfection of reality includes even what we call imperfection from the egoic perspective. And from the egoic perspective, particularly if you're a, a fourth dimension um, ego, there's plenty of imperfection around. Reality is a perfection that cannot become imperfect. Reality is a perfection that cannot become imperfect. In the language of the Enneagram, this is the idea of holy perfection, which is the holy idea of the first dimension. And the moment we see that there is nothing but this, but life, but this, we recognize that everything is perfect at all times and at all points in space. If life, if God is everything that is, how can there be imperfection? When we don't like some manifestation and we want things to be different, all it means is that we have not really surrendered to holy will. We have our own prejudices and we have our own ideas about how things should be and these could form the basis of our own personal religion. But whatever <laughs> doesn't detract from the fact that reality is a perfection that cannot become imperfect. The idea of holy truth then is that nothing is excluded. The ego is not excluded, thinking is not excluded, reactivity is not excluded, even though it's pretty crappy, neurosis is not excluded, although that's even crappier, and the physical realm is not excluded. This is because there is nothing but the one, so there is no other. Obviously, when there is one and no other, one is not being used in the mathematical sense. Pythagoras taught that numbers, in fact, start with three. One is God, two is Logos, and three is the beginning of creation. Since reality is one and there is no other, how could there be duality? So every time we experience a new dimension of being, we realize that it is part of the one, which includes all numbers. So the two resulting from the new dimension 
is included within this. This is difficult to conceptualize because this one is an infinite existence. Whereas, of course, in language, when we talk about one, it doesn't feel infinite. Since it has no boundary and since it encompasses infinite space, we can't really conceive of it as this mathematical one. When we demarcate one area of physical space and then another, can we say that there is more than one space? Both are subsets of and included in the all-encompassing space. The state of unity, which is to say experiencing that everything makes up one thing, appears in all the boundless dimensions. Holy truth, essence, being. The sense of it becomes progressively deeper until we experience that all the dimensions are unified. This is a progressive attainment and it doesn't happen all at once. We might, for example, experience the unity of the dimensions of living daylight and the supreme, in which case the experience of unity would have the transparency and clarity of the supreme, as well as the whitish, yellowish hue and sense of delicate love and grace of living daylight. Or the sense of unity might be experienced between the dimensions of the nameless, that is to say the non-conceptual and the supreme, but the experience of this complete unity, the complete, the complete, 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 the completest of the complete unity, is much more difficult to attain. Generally, most people initially experience unity while experiencing one of the formless dimensions by itself. So, if one is experiencing the state of unity on the level of living daylight alone, it would be the sense that everything is love, or if uh, one is experiencing it on the level of the supreme by itself, it would be the, the sense that everything is pure being, pure presence. Again, this is not the experience that everything is made out of love or being, which is the experience of these dimensions still infused with duality, but that the whole universe is living daylight, or that the whole universe is the supreme. This is the state of unification. In any case, the level at which one experiences this unity is not relevant to the idea of holy truth. The most important thing about this state of unification is that there are not two. Egoic consciousness is by its very nature based on division. There is a me, there is a you. I am talking to you. You are listening or you are not listening. You are talking back to me or you are not talking back to me. But if there is no duality in our perception, the ego, we might say at this point, is kind of non-existent. The study of the holy ideas, therefore, is not the study of the building blocks of the ego and the ego cage. That is more the territory of the Enneagram and the psychology of the Enneagram. The building blocks of ego are elucidated when exploring some of these essential aspects and formless dimensions. But here, in this dimension of holy truth, in the eighth dimension, we are studying the principles that hold together all the building blocks, all the building blocks of ego. Duality. 
So in the study of the Enneagram of Holy Ideas, the first principle that we encounter which holds the ego together is this belief in duality. This is one of the subtlest and deepest principles without which the ego could not exist and function in the way that it does. It arises as a result of the loss of perception of holy truth. When a direct perception about reality is lost, which is to say that when one of the holy ideas is lost to our experience, what arises is not a particular state, but rather a sort of distorted, erroneous, mistaken idea about reality, which we might call a delusion. In other words, the loss of each holy idea leads to a specific delusion associated with that point on the Enneagram, with that dimension of human beingness. So, one of the fundamental properties of reality, as described by Holy Truth, is non-duality. When the oneness of reality is not perceived, the delusion of duality arises. This delusion is the perception that, th that the difference and separations between things that exist are ultimate, that this is the true state of affairs. Because of the way the mind functions, because we also have bilateral minds, the loss of an idea leads to a deluded idea about reality. We cannot just not have a principle of reality because the mind can't really function without one. So if there is no perception of the fundamental unity of all existence, then there is, there has to be, dual minds, the perception of duality. If there is duality, there is the loss of unity. And the loss of unity, we might say, is the loss of the condition of the natural state of total completeness. Another way of putting this is that it is the loss of God consciousness or life consciousness. And maybe another way of stating it is that it is a place of suffering. Understandably, this belief in duality, which is our default, certainly my default, will remain in place as long as there is no understanding of holy truth. The ego by its very nature assumes duality, the belief that who I am is ultimately separate and discreet from you, that all other manifestations are also separate and discreet. This results in divisions in our mind between the ultimate truth and the world, spirit and matter, absolute truth, relative truth, God and the universe, God and myself, you and I, ego and essence. This belief in division as ultimate is a conviction so deeply ingrained in the soul that it is one of the last things we can even contemplate confronting, let alone releasing. Even after a long time traveling the spiritual paths, we cannot conceive that this might be an assumption about reality rather than the truth. We think, well, this is how reality is. Everyone knows that. My parents believed it. My teachers believed it. Scientists write books on how things are fundamentally divisible and, and everything seems to work according to this knowledge. This conviction is so deeply entrenched that it has become an organizing principle for the very particles of our souls. Like a magnet arranges particles of metal, this conviction arranges our souls so that we can't even imagine that things could be otherwise. We are, metaphorically speaking, always pointing north, and so we think 
that this is how reality is. Letting go of the magnet would mean realizing that that orientation is not reality and that things are actually much more free-flowing than we thought. The sense of duality then arises through the loss of this holy truth. And holy truth, as previously discussed, has the qualities of goodness, of positivity, and of being loving. In holy truth, the multiplicity is in unity at all levels, and everyone and everything is holy. The word holy in the language of the Enneagram is not used in the usual dualistic sense, that which is opposite to the bad, the mundane, or to the human. Holy means objective, how things really are, beyond the cloud of egoic experience. So holy truth here means objective truth. When we are experiencing the state of holy truth, of objective truth, everything becomes hallowed, filled with a sense of wonder, beauty and grace. There is a sense of holiness to the experience and those who live in this state we might refer to as holy in our spiritual traditions. Original sin. So the experience of duality, we might say, is imbued with the loss of that holiness, with the loss of that beauty, with the loss of harmony, and therefore has a negative tinge to it. This loss will be experienced as the sense that something is fundamentally wrong. The closest thing to the sense is the feeling of what we might call original sin. We know something terrible has happened, but we don't know exactly what it is. We don't know that it is really the loss of our natural state. The term Zogchen in Tibetan literally means the natural state of the human animal, the condition where everything is completely the way it should be. And this is what we have lost. We've lost our Zogchen. We've lost our natural state. This results in a very deep state of something that we might call sin. It feels like a disconnection. It feels like a loss. It feels like a falling away from grace. We no longer live in holy truth. We sense that what is most true and precious has been lost and destroyed. And maybe we sense that someone or something is to blame. Through the filter of the delusion of duality. One thing becomes perceived as being in opposition to another, and one side is guilty. We see this often in couples, two people who have come together in pursuit of something called love. The loving and perfect truth often in couples, but also in ourselves, has been lost. And so someone, right, someone must have committed a crime or a sin here and must be found and maybe even punished. Punished by stonewalling them or expressing contempt towards them or blaming them. And maybe we can see this 
uh, in the eighth <laughs> dimension, um, uh, the, the cage of eight, um, when referring to something called ego-venge. <laughs> ego-venge. Ultimately, we blame ourselves for no longer being divine, and later this blame is projected onto others in order to protect ourselves from the self-hatred that would otherwise result. When children experience that something goes wrong, they tend to blame themselves. Regardless of whose fault it really is, the quality of self-blame in the ego leads the child to take responsibility. Even when children are sexually or physically abused, they always believe that it is their fault. From the perspective of the Enneagram of Holy Ideas, the depth of the sense of self-blame is not dependent upon what actually happens, but is due to the absence of the perception of holy truth. So, universally, children blame themselves for the loss of their sense of being divine, for their fall from grace, we might say. The result is a deep anguish and a sense of guilt, which becomes the primary source around which other guilts later accumulate. The moment we place blame on ourselves or others, we are not only experiencing the loss of the preciousness of the state of unity, but we are also reaffirming this sense of duality, of there being a me and a you, of there being a me who has been left behind and a you who has left me behind. Blame then, whether of self or other, indicates that the ego is already operating within the delusion of duality. If we are in touch, however, with the inherent unity of all existence, if it is all just one thing, blame just doesn't make any sense. Self-blame. Ultimately, all self-blame comes down to blaming oneself for not being enlightened. Ultimately, all self-blame comes down to blaming oneself for not being enlightened. Universally, there is a core place within all ego structures where one feels guilty for not being a realized being, for not being the thing that our minds tell us we should be, and we probably should have been this 20 years earlier. The guilt, as we have seen, has to do with the fact in Christian terms, that we have been thrown out of paradise. Yet, we don't blame God for this, we blame ourselves. Of course we do. We ate that freaking apple, didn't we? The deeper we go into understanding the sense of guilt, the more we realize that we feel guilty for not being real. We feel guilty for not being real. This is particularly relevant when we have perhaps realized some of the essential aspects of the point of, you know, essential identity, shall we say, when we have done that psycho-spiritual work and seen the chiaroscuro of our cages. Here we see that we have carried within us a profound sense of guilt for losing contact with our true nature. A sense of great betrayal might then arise at this point, not just because our parents didn't see our real nature, but that we stopped seeing it. We abandoned what was real in ourselves. We abandoned ourselves. And each of our dimensions, each of our 
Enneat types, each of our ego cages, will experience this guilt in a slightly different way as it is filtered through the lens of each one of our specific delusions. But this guilt and self-blame for the loss of contact with being is universal to all egoic experience. How could it be otherwise? The Bible tells us that Adam and Eve were thrown out of the Garden of Eden for eating the forbidden fruit. From this perspective, we can see that the fruit is the experience of duality, the first departure from the state of unity, the first division. So because we are not in a state of total completeness, we feel guilty, we feel bad, and we have an attitude of maybe punishing or even hating ourselves. This then gets projected and we attempt to remedy the situation by getting revenge. This is the constellation or complex that results from the loss of holy truth. Revenge is really the ego's attempt to regain the original state of unity. It is a way of trying to get rid of the guilt and the pain through a convoluted line of reasoning that goes something like this. Someone has hurt me and this pain involves loss of my sense of unity. So I retaliate by hurting them if possible maybe in exactly the same way, in the belief that doing so will enable me somehow to rid myself of my own pain and restore the sense of unity. This is, of course, the rationale behind the biblical phrase, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The nine delusions arising from the loss of the nine holy ideas are, we might say, the seeds around which the cause, not the cause, as in a cause, but C-O-R-E-S, the core of the nine Enya types develop. And while each is most dominant for the ego structure of that type, the nine are, are present in all ego structures. The delusions then form the nine principles inherent in all ego structures and lives informed by our egos, which is to say, our lives as they are unfolding here and now in this very default way. We have seen how the loss of holy truth leads to, del to the delusion of duality and how out of this loss of true reality, this state of the fall, arises a painful sense of badness, of guilt and of what we might call original sin. Self-blame ensues for not being divine, which then becomes self-punishment and the attempt to avenge oneself. This constellation forms the core, the major psychological constellation related to this point on the Enneagram, out of which the whole Enneatype develops. The holy ideas are different forms of the perception of the soul in a completely open and transparent state, that is, the soul which is in touch with living daylight. As the sun, as I read this, is in touch with me and the page. The loss of the state of openness and wholeness, whether it results from normal egoic identification with a separate sense of self or from the contraction away from contact with experience that is involved in reacting to a sense of the loss of holding inevitably results in the loss of a sense of unity, of connection, of perfection, of love and flow and so on.
the core constellation is actually really just one unified process with three factors or three facets. Facet one, the loss of an idea is the same process as the loss of a sense of holding in the environment and the loss of basic trust. So the loss of holy truth we could say leads to the specific delusion of duality. There is no holding, there is no basic trust um, with me vis-a-vis -vis the environment. Facet two, loss or inadequacy of the holding environment results in the painful egoic state that we might call our specific difficulty. Here, the loss of holding filtered through the delusion of duality refers or results in the specific difficulty of a sense of badness, a sense of guilt, a sense of sinfulness, a sense of wrongness, a sense of um, problem, something like that. And facet three, the loss of basic trust filtered through the delusion results in what we might call our specific reaction, the specific reactivity of each point. Just as the loss of the sense of holding results in the loss of basic trust, the specific reaction is an attempt to deal with this specific difficulty through a form of reactivity. And here it could be the reaction of self-blame, which as we have seen is based upon a sense of duality and opposition, and which ultimately blossoms into an attempt, if we are a somewhat unhealthy eight, to get revenge. The holy truth includes everything, including guilt and self-blame. It is all-inclusive, it is all-encompassing, otherwise it would not be holy. The belief that some manifestations are holy and others are not, or that some people are chosen by God and that others are not, is not holy truth. Holy truth chooses all of us. We are its life. This is why it is said that the sort becomes the seeker. The sort becomes the seeker. And presumably, the seeker becomes the sort. Holy truth, then, manifests as the seeker looking for holy truth. Our journey, it might be said, is a matter of the seeker finding out that they are sought. The journey is a matter of us, the seeker, finding out that we are being sought. When we know this, at this point, we might realize that there is no need for seeking.
Love like syntax, bring it to me, bring it to me. 